0: First Timothy 1, verse 12, hear ye the word of the Lord. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God be glory be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. God's word for God's people and God's people said amen. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God lasts forever. Amen. For uh, the time that we're going to spend together, and I won't be before you long, or at least I don't intend to be before you long. I want to talk about the worst of them. Here you have a writing from the Apostle Paul to his son in the ministry, Timothy, one who has uh, grown up with a A mother and a grandmother that taught him a lot about God and then he went on to become a pastor and a a leader in this church and Paul is here giving him some instructions and they talk about whether or not uh, a letter was actually written by Paul because about two-thirds of the New Testament is attributed to him but when you get to the cemetery I mean seminary they start talking about uh, what they call, considered deutero line letters, which means it may not have been written by him. It might have been written by one of his students, and what they did is they wrote like him. Uh, and so you have Paul line letters, and you have deutero line letters, and then you have other letters that may have been attributed to Paul at one time, and they straight up don't have any idea who wrote it. Ah. Uh, But they all come together to form this thread about this man born of a virgin suffering under Pontius Pilate being crucified, dead and buried and rose again from the third day. And then telling us how the church was supposed to how the church acted after he rose from the dead and came back and talked to people. That's Acts. And then you have all these letters that talk about how the church is supposed to act while he's away. That's these New Testament scriptures. And then you have Revelation, which tells us he's coming back again. But all you have these letters that are attributed to Paul, and this is one of them, and one of the things that they talk about when they talk about this letter is that this is not the typical Thanksgiving. Uh, The Apostle Paul, when he writes the letters, he starts off with his Thanksgiving, and then he gets to the meat of his argument, and then he tells you what you need to do about the meat of what the argument is, and then later on towards the end, he has certain blessings and things that he wants to send to certain people, and that's normally how a letter works. And you have these thanksgivings where he thanks God for being God all by himself practically. But in this letter, he doesn't necessarily thank God for being God all by himself. Not that you should not thank God for being God all by himself, but he thanks God for what God has done for him. (laughs) I know we talk about how sometimes you're supposed to seek God's face instead of his hand. But sometimes you just need to thank God for what he pulled you out of, protecting you from danger seen and unseen and keeping these things from happening from you. And sometimes you have to thank God. And so here you have Paul thanking God for what Jesus has done for him because he's the worst of them. He was a Hebrew among Hebrews, and that's why I like Paul, because whatever Paul did, Paul went 100% all the time. I had a coach that used to tell us, I don't care what you do as long as you do it 100 miles an hour, and Paul went 100 miles an hour every time. So when he was a Hebrew, he was a Hebrew among Hebrews, a Pharisee. He knew the law back and forth. He had pre- He had prepared and done all of these different things, and he did that. And he did it so much that he attacked those people when this new upstart person from Galilee started talking talking about he was the Messiah. He went in on all of them. And so he said this is not the typical Thanksgiving because Paul has been saved. What did God do? He saved Paul. He saved him from the penalty of death, hell, and the grave. And he was thankful for it. Uh, He says, here is a trustworthy statement. Something Paul says often when he's talking to pastors if you read 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. There's a trustworthy statement there. It's one of his sure sayings. You can be sure of it. You can believe it. The statement is faithful and worthy of acceptance. That's what he's saying. What is it that you can believe? You can believe that Christ came into the world to save sinners. Watch the text here. It says, 1st Christ." Came into the world. Christ came, not Christ born. Christ came. Christ was here before the the world was formed. Let me prove it. There was somebody by the name of John who walked with Jesus and wrote everything down that he walked with Jesus. In John one one through five, he says, "In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He was with God in the beginning. And through Him all things were made. Without Him, nothing." That was made has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. He's talking about the word. And the word is with God. And the word was God. So they're there in the beginning. God sits outside of time. And so he's there from the beginning. That's why he said Christ came. And you slide down in that same John chapter 1. From 1 through 5. You go down to verse 14. It says that the word became flesh and dwelt among them. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So you have the God there sitting at the beginning before everything was formed. And you see the Word is there with God before everything was formed. And you see that the Word was God before everything was formed. And then you see that the Word became flesh before everything was formed. And that Word that became flesh was Jesus because we go on down to Revelation and it talks about Jesus returning in uh, Revelation 19 and it says he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. So he talks about Christ coming into the world. Christ is able to save the world because he was there before the world was formed. When you have been there before something else was around, you're able to control it. When you don't apply to the same rules, you're able to control it. Every day, I tell myself I'll never let a machine get the best of me. I work in technology, and in in technology, I tell computers what to do. I tell computers to tell devices what to do, and every time I fix something, before I walk into that room and something's broke, I say I'll never let a machine get the best of me. Why? Because I I came around before this machine came around. And I don't apply to the same rules that this machine applies to. And because I don't apply to the the rules, the same rules that apply to this machine don't apply to me, I know I can defeat it. And just as much as I am able to defeat any problem in the machine because the rules do not apply to me, because the rules do not apply to God, the rules do not apply to Jesus, Jesus is able to do better things than this world. Because he came before the world and he came into the world. Christ was there at the beginning, and the text says he came. Well, what did he come to do? The text says he came into the world to save the sinners. Uh, He was despised and rejected by men. He bore our griefs uh, and and carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken. Uh, But he was wounded for our transgressions. Bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. What you're basically saying is, is he came into the world not through some fancy family. He could have if he so decided, but he came into the world through a smaller family, as Isaiah 53 says, and he bore our transgressions. That means he took the punishment that we were supposed to get. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. They deemed him guilty for things and he didn't say a mumbling word, but he took that punishment for every one of us so that we could have access to salvation. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before his shearer is silent. So he opened not his mouth and he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So he sat on that cross, but not only did he sit on that cross by himself, he sat on that cross with my sins and your sins and your sins and your sins. Everybody's sins. And he stepped out of eternity. He put on human flesh and lived a life that we could not live so so we could have eternal life. God loved the world so much that he gave his son Jesus to die for us. Now his name wasn't actually Jesus. For all those purists out there, I, I run into a lot of purists that say there was no Jesus and Jesus didn't exist. And their their first argument about it is there's no J in the Hebrew language. His name is not Jesus. It's Yeshua ben Joseph. But uh, 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 they say that that's just what it translates into English. But he came, this man that we call Jesus, came into the earth to save us from what our own sin. Our own punishment for the sin because we have acts. If we didn't have Jesus, our, our reward for our behavior, our reward for what we were born into, our, our just deserts would be death, hell, and the grave. And we are subjected to the penalty of sin ever since the fall of man. It ain't really nothing we did other than being born, but it happened long before, way back when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And they put an angel with a flaming sword there so they couldn't get back. Everything. Was, 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 was good then but it lost and since we lost everything we've been trying to get it back and through Christ coming through this world living a perfect life dying for our sins and not just staying dead but being raised from the dead on the third day that whosoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life so if you can believe that you have access to salvation Christ came to the world to save us. And he did it by dying and being rose from the dead. But that's not where the story ends. He came back. People saw it. They went to all the people that saw him and went went back to all the people that oppressed him and said, You killed him. God raised him from the dead. Y'all messed up. I think this man was right about what he said. Then he had breakfast on the beach with Peter. He went around and showed Thomas the wounds in his hands. He spoke to, he walked with the people on the road to Emmaus. He was around for weeks and then he ascended into heaven. But that's still not where the story ends. The the, the, The story goes on to tell us that he's coming back again. And while we wait for him to appear, we are to follow him. And he gave us plenty of instructions. I I, kind of found it corny, but it applies all the time. They say Bible, B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth. He told us what we needed to do in the meantime, love the Lord with all our heart and all our mind and all our souls and to love the neighbor as we love ourselves. He told us to take care of the widows and the orphans and those who couldn't. He told us to go out and make disciples of Jesus Christ and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. That is what we are supposed to do. But that all got started with him saving somebody. Oh, and that somebody was you and I. So dying for our sins so that whoever, did, whoever being raised from the dead and whoever believed it could no longer face the penalty of sin. Paul is letting us know because of what Jesus did. Paul doesn't have to worry about the penalty anymore. And guess what? Neither do any of y'all. All All you have to do is to get started is to prove to is to choose to believe. So he saved Paul, the worst of them. And he selected Paul. Let the church say selected. God has a plan for you. You may not realize it, but yet as long as you have breath in your body. God has a plan for you. God had a plan for Paul. God had a plan for Timothy. God had a plan for Abraham. God had a plan for Moses. God has a plan for Johnny. God has a plan for everybody. It's up to us to find that plan, understand that plan, and say, here I am, Lord. Send me. Just as Paul was selected to do something great, so are we. He was commissioned. He was appointed to do something for the Lord and they chose somebody that wasn't necessarily who we would have thought was the most qualified. I've heard the adage said all the time that God does not always call the qualified but he qualifies the called. If we're waiting on somebody's resume to be enough to do whatever it is that's supposed to be done, it'll never get done. I I laugh to myself since we're in this political election right now, this election year. I laugh to myself when I look at some of these political positions and they talk about having experience and whether or not somebody is fit enough to do the job. When I look at some of those jobs, there is actually no preparation for that job. Now, I say this saying to myself that I feel like governors make better presidents because they've been at the top of something and I would like to see that. But when you really look at it, you can't really... Prepare for being the president. No matter who gets in that spot, when they get into that spot, it's on the job training. There are no other presidents of United States jobs open. Yes, you can be a senator, and yes, you can be a governor or, or a congressperson, or you can be all of these different things and decide to run for this office, but there is no, there's only one president of the United States at one time. But people like to do that because that is what people. Do when I say they like to do that, I mean they like to look at somebody's qualifications. Where'd you go to school? What side of town do you live on? Who your people? They're trying to put together all of these different things, and if you look at all of those different things, and you'll decide whether or not they they are qualified to do the job in your mind. Well, I hate to bust your bubble, but whether or not they're qualified to do the job in your mind is actually a fantasy. God will select whoever he wants to do a particular job. If he was waiting on you to do it or waiting on you to get certain qualifications to do it, then where does God have this opportunity to work? If we could do it based on our resume and our resume alone, where would God move in? Because sometimes God takes the least of us and has us do some of the most powerful things. So God has a plan for you. And it's not always based upon your resume. Because if it was on your resume, if somebody hit everything you wanted in, in your job description, you'd probably still say there was something wrong with them. And if you wanted somebody perfect to do everything, if they actually were perfect, they probably wouldn't want to be around your imperfect time parts. So when God... What God did was save Paul and he selected Paul. And when did God do it? He did it at the time that he was a blasphemer and a violent persecutor of Christians. And when they say blasphemer, it's not blaspheming in the sense that, that we would take blaspheming to mean to disrespect God and to speak ill of the Holy Spirit and those kind of things. But it's used sort of intention. He had a problem with these, this young upstart born in Bethlehem from Galilee walking around talking about the spirit of the Lord is upon me and he's giving me power to open up blinded eyes and heal the the sick and raise the dead and declare the acceptable year of the Lord. Nobody was really looking for that. But here this person was and so he was a blasphemer and he had problems against that. And if you read Acts 8 through 9 and 22 and 26 and in Galatians as well, Paul talks about what he did. Paul went 100 miles an hour against the church. He went church to church. And if anybody was in there talking about this man named Jesus, they got the hands, as they say. They got beat up. And the ones that didn't get beat up, he sent to prison. And others that got killed because he did not care at all for this Christianity stuff. It should have been straight about the Judaism as we did it. And he, he got letters from the high priest at the time and got them sent to the synagogues. And if this man comes up in your synagogue trying to talk about something, you need to let me know. And if anybody else comes through in the synagogue trying to talk about something, you need to let me know. Anybody come around talking about Jesus? Let me know. I got something for them. And so he went violently against the church and got letters. And then he was on his way to Damascus and got blinded. And he heard a voice say, Saul, because at the time he wasn't called Paul. He was called Saul. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, basically, who am I talking to? Who is this talking to me? And he said, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuted. And he was blinded for days. And eventually got there and he met up with Peter. And Peter, who who was going through his own vision at the same time. Because Peter had nothing to do with certain things. and, and, And God told him to go there and they met up and he talked. And Paul saw the arrow of his ways. Paul did not know what he was doing. Nor did he know who he was doing it against. But God still chose to save him, the worst of them, someone who actively pursued killing other Christians. And now we, we, he, he wrote so much of the Bible that there are people that argue we shouldn't really say we're Christians. We should say we're Paulinians because he determines a whole bunch of what we say and what we do and how the church is supposed to operate. But we still follow Jesus because at the end of the day, it was Jesus who hung, bled, and died on the cross. It was Jesus who rose from the dead on the third day. And it's Jesus who we wait to come back for. But Paul was still chosen to be a great important part in our faith walk. And he said God still chose to save him, the worst of them. And if he did that before, he'll do it again. As I was preparing for this. Sermon. I came across the story and I found it kind of interesting because we're talking about Paul thanking God and confessing his sin. He's confessing what he used to do. He's not trying to hide it. He's putting it out there. God, I have messed up. God, I am sorry. God, I need to change the way I operate and we ought to be able to do that ourselves. Uh, The Bible says that all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. There's no qualifier on there. Not all except. Not all, but don't mention this person. Not all, all have sinned. We were all born into sin since the first two people came on the earth. But here when I was preparing for the sermon, I came across this story about Watergate. And during the Watergate scandal, there was a special prosecutor by the name of Leon Jaworski. And he was going to church on a Sunday. And, and Leon Jaroski was sitting in church at New York Avenue Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C. And he was sitting at this church, and they had an empty pew there every Sunday. And that pew was called the Lincoln Pew. And they called it the Lincoln Pew because this historic church actually had Abraham Lincoln come to visit their church. And that's the pew he sat on. And so from there on, this church at New York Avenue uh, Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C., nobody sat on that row because it was reserved for sitting presidents when they would come. And if any president decided they wanted to come to that church after that, that was the pew they sat on. And so here you have Leon Jarorski, special prosecutor in the Watergate scandal where these people were charged with breaking into a, a, a the Democratic National Commission's office and stealing stuff, and there were tapes that were recorded of everything that he did. And here you have this going on. And there's this pew that's empty. And lo and behold, on this Sunday morning during the Watergate scandal, President Nixon walks into this church and grabs a seat on the Lincoln pew. So here you have... The president of the United States, who is about to get investigated by a special prosecutor, and they're still in the same church. Now, I'm going to take a break right here and just talk about this for a minute. What does that say about our God? That here you can have people who are on opposite sides of the aisle go to the same church. Uh, We're the United Methodist Church. And, you know, I find something interesting that, you know, they talk about this, but uh, 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 President George W. Bush is Methodist, our former governor and a former Republican president. But you know who else is Methodist? Hillary Clinton is Methodist. So here it has, it doesn't matter if you are a, a Democrat or a Republican, there's still one God. Doesn't matter if you are a prosecutor or the person being prosecuted, there is still one God. God sits on the throne and is above all, and there is none above him. So it doesn't matter what your political affiliation is, what is your godly affiliation. But back to the story, here you have this Watergate scandal coming on and the special prosecutor in the church and, 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 and Richard Nixon at the time, the sitting president, comes in and sits down on the Lincoln pew. And it says when they interviewed Mr. Jaworski, he said he imagined in his head the president doing this. And he said that he imagined the, pres- the president asking for a moment of the pastor's time. And saying, I want to say as president of the United States, I have sinned before God and I have lied to you. I have asked for his forgiveness and now I ask for yours. I have come to this church today to make full disclosure of who I am and what I have become. And I promise to you this day, I will go forward and do better. And the prosecutor said, had President Nixon done that, had he said it in his, what he imagined in his mind, had President Nixon done that in real life, he said he would have put the president on his shoulders personally and carried him back to the White house because he would have acknowledged what he did was wrong. You know, I watched First 48. Uh, it's a TV show. And I also watch um, NCIS, and, and I used to watch CSI when I was, uh, these shows are some of my uh, favorite TV shows, and and one thing that I, I found interesting about it was, you know, you have NCIS, and you have CSI, and CSI Miami, and NCIS Los Angeles, and these are these shows where these investigators come in, and when there's a crime that has been committed... They look at the evidence. They see what kind of hair follicles are left. They see where fingerprints are. They look for evidence uh, that you have left yourself at the crime scene. And this makes for a wonderful show because it focuses on the forensic investigative departments of these various organizations. All they do is process the evidence. But that's a fantasy. It's not real. There are these departments. But when I watch First 48... A show that says that when there's a murder that's been committed, the the best time to catch somebody is in the first 48 hours. And I watched the first 48, and the first 48, which is a real show that follows around actual detectives, whenever they catch somebody, they catch them based on witnesses, eyewitnesses and actual confessions. So that leads me to believe that the really thing that's most important is you can have DNA evidence and you can have certain things going around, but what they are looking for is the confession because the confession takes precedence over everything else. You can have everything you want sitting on a stack, but you still want them to confess. And even when you confess and you are found guilty after the trial, if you don't confess and you are found guilty after the trial, they want you to allocate. Before the sentencing, so you still got to stand up and confess what you've done. You have to tell what you've done because that is what is most important. And if we could acknowledge that we've done wrong, if we could stop pretending like sin doesn't exist, if we could stop pretending like there's something that's going on and it's just a minor thing and we just messed up just a little bit, if we could actually get it in our understanding that sin is bad and actually confess the sins, we would be that much better off. I know I talked about TV shows, but I got some Bible for that. Uh, 1 John 1 and 9 says, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. This is not a pass to do what we want, but it's an understanding that, we, that sin is sin and we don't need to downplay sin. But this is to let us know that if we need to confess it, we ought to go ahead and do it. And we don't need to confess it to everybody, but we can at least confess it to God. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. So he did this to Paul. Paul was in the midst of this mess and he said, I messed up. And not only did he say I messed up, but I thank God that God decided to save me. And why did God do it? He did it to demonstrate his amazing grace. Even to the worst of sinners. This makes me pretty happy. Not because I've been going to church to church fighting and killing Christians. You know, the saints will run your blood pressure up, but that's not what I'm talking about right now. I'm not putting these saints in prison. But I have done some things myself that are not worthy of salvation. But God's grace is overflowing. God's mercy is everlasting. God's truth endures to all generations. And this is not for me to brag. This is not for me to flaunt a uh, get-out-of-jail-free card. But it is to show that God's grace is available for all. We don't put any kind of qualification on it. If you want to receive God's grace, all you have to do is accept it. It's available for all. It's a gift you cannot earn. It's something you cannot work for. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. If left to my own devices, I know I couldn't save myself. If left to my own devices, I know I couldn't work my own way into heaven with these hands. But if it's not for God's grace, if it's not for God's unmerited favor, if it's not for God showing us the ultimate act of love, sending his son to die for us on that Friday on a hill called Calvary and take my Savior and and hung him up between two thieves. And he died. He died for your sins and my sins and everybody's sins. And that fixed his dying and his resurrection, fixed our sin problem. But we still need to confess We still need to let our sins be made known to God and understand that if God can save the worst of us, he can save us. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God be honor and glory forever and ever. In the name of the father, in the name of the son and in the Holy Spirit, the doors of the church are open and we invite you to come.